Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. to be back here on the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Some great things coming up on the show for you, so stay tuned. Well, this week's episode is all about reflections on resilience supply chains. And I want to talk about what it means to be resilient in both the country sense and the company sense. And what I mean by that, I'm going to take a look at some of the geopolitics that's involved in supply chains, however and whenever they're constructed, and why governments need to be smart when they think about configuring supply chains, as of course do companies. So, let's get started. one of the most important developments for any country or any company is securing supplies. For the past 20 years, the world's minerals have been gathered by China. China has made huge investments in Central Africa, in the Central Africa Copper Belt, and it's taken over all kinds of mining operations. 20 or 30 years ago, China didn't have a great deal of mining capacity, but in the past 20 years, that's been developed immensely. And they've secured massive amounts of minerals such as cobalt, lithium, copper. And these are all metals needed for the Green Revolution. And when we talk about the Green Revolution, one of the outward signs of this so-called Green Revolution is the development of electrical vehicles. But electrical vehicles aren't really as clean, perhaps, as we might think. In 2022, the Biden administration announced a raft of measures to increase production and processing of critical minerals in the United States. If you look at the US economy, they only produce about 1% of nickel, no cobalt, no graphite, no lithium, 5% of manganese, cathode about 1%, anode 0 and lithium-iron battery cell manufacturing is about 7%, so it's all extremely low. In contrast, if you look at China, they produce or process 68% of the nickel in the world, 73% of cobalt, 100% of the graphite, 59% lithium, 93% manganese, 80% of cathode, 89% anode, and lithium-ion battery cell manufacturing, about 79%. The European Union produce small amounts, 10% nickel, 15% cobalt, zero graphite, of course, lithium zero, manganese five, cathode one, anode none, and lithium-ion battery cell manufacturing, 7%. So China dominates in these EV markets. And they've invested all over the world, not just in Central Africa, but they own mining operations in South America and in Australia. Western economies seem ill-prepared for this new green revolution. But is it really so green? 
demand for the metals has increased substantially as the green revolution is taking off. And as we try to produce more and more electrical vehicles, the demand for the metals to go into those vehicles and particularly into the battery technology is likely to increase. It's expected that Britain alone will see a further 2 million electrical vehicles on the roads by 2035. Lithium prices are about 500% up during the past year alone. And electric cars use six times the amount of battery metals that conventional cars need, so the International Energy Agency says. Onshore wind farms require nine times more than a gas plant. So if the world is to reach its net zero target by 2050, the World Bank has estimated the production of these metals need to rise by 500% by the mid-century point. Now that's a fantastic number. Securing sufficient supplies of the all-important metals is critical to this development. And one thing is clear that the biggest processor of these metals, China, is one of the most polluting nations in the globe. And we don't really know how much pollution is contributed by the production processes involved in getting those metals to a state of readiness to be used in electrical vehicles and in wind farms and everything else that's supposed to be green and clean. So we could do with a lot more research on that topic. And governments need to be faster and smarter in their response to secure supply if they too want to be green and clean. Today is a time for reflection, a reflection on all the ideas and supply chains that became very popular. And if you think a few years back, we talked about offshoring, and that was a way of lowering cost by moving production away from onshore where production costs were getting higher and achieve lower cost production overseas. And it was part of what we now refer to as the globalization process. And there were big ideas like business process re-engineering, looking at every aspect of an organization's supply chain to see how we could actually lower the cost of production. Now, that in itself is not a bad thing to look at efficiency and to see how you can lower cost, because that's what business is about. It's about producing more for less, and that's always been a name. But there was a a move of everything offshore until we realised, perhaps, that we were exporting jobs abroad, technologies abroad, and dismantling infrastructure that could support the economy. And if you think about those things from a political point of view and a social point of view, and not just an economic point of view, then that can't be right, because the aim of communities is to support communities through local production, local activity, have employment and generate sufficient income for the population of the country. Now there was a tendency to forget about those other aspects and simply go on the economics of the situation. So offshore we went. Some companies of course didn't have a problem because they were already located in several places around the globe and therefore it didn't make any difference to those countries to move offshore. And they could lower their tax bills too by ensuring that profits were earned in low-cost, low-tax areas and that reduced their tax bills and their costs. So not only did people move production offshore, but they lowered the tax take for their original location. So if you think about offshoring, that's a process that began and was maintained for some considerable time. 
Then people began to realize that there was a risk to offshoring because it made longer supply chains. If disruption happened, delays occurred. And so they began to spread that risk by moving some production near shore and even onshore. And so the process began to reverse and not fully reverse, but to maintain a balance in the production supply chains. Now, when we think about balance, balance is important in every aspect of life. And having an ecosystem in a supply chain that has balance is important. It spreads risk, it lowers cost, and it redistributes resources, and it redistributes the capacity. Now, let's move forward to today and what's happening now. Governments in the past year or two through the pandemic period have been focusing more on resilience. And Joe Biden's come out with a resilience statement for the United States. And resilience means making sure that they bounce back and recover from the downturn that the pandemic caused. But it's not just about that. It's seen in some parts as a form of protectionism, but it isn't just that either. It's about making sure that the geopolitical landscape is shifted. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's think about the rise in interest in geopolitics. Geopolitics, of course, it's the geography and the political state of the nation and the world. So if you want to be resilient, what you can do is you can begin to think about strengthening the country or the nation state by not necessarily offshoring, onshoring, nearshoring and all those sorts of supply chain moves. But from a political point of view, you can do what some people have referred to as friend shoring. Now, let's think about friend shoring. Friend shoring means that you deal with people who you share political goals with and therefore you begin to restructure supply chains to deal with nation states that have similar interests and similar outlooks. Now, if you think of the rise of, say, trading blocks, originally in the United States, we had NAFTA, North American Free Trade Association, and that's morphed into other acronyms where they deal with Canada and Mexico and the local areas around the United States. In Europe, we have the European Union with the countries who have grouped together to become a, a trading block and an economic powerhouse. And then in Asia, we have ASEAN and those sorts of groupings. Again, similar interests and the geopolitics then becomes or starts to become more clear about how those countries group together. And by having those blocks, that creates also friendshoring. So you tend to put your production in countries where you have similar interests and you trade with each other. And the geography of the situation often determines how that will play out. So that's what I mean by friendshoring. Your location in the world tends to determine who you will deal with and who, how you will be able to deal effectively and efficiently. And so you can't just turn your back on your neighbours. You have to work with those neighbours to create supply chains that are efficient and effective. And you reciprocate in the deals that you make, in the tariffs and the quotas that you negotiate. Some interesting statistics this week from uh, Industry Week in the United States. The median age, apparently, of US manufacturing workers is 44 
years old. 308,000 manufacturing workers left their companies in December last year, and there were 294,000 departures in November, and 298,000 in October. So quite a lot of people leaving the manufacturing sector. But the paradox, of course, is there are 856,000 manufacturing job openings in December, which is the biggest fundamental shift in the past 15 years. There are over 3 million industrial robots worldwide in 2020, according to Statista. Apparently South Korea is the most robot-dense nation in the world, with 932 robots for every 10,000 workers. Singapore is number two with 605, Japan 390, Germany 371, Sweden 289, Hong Kong 275, and the United States at 255. China has the greatest overall number of industrial robots, but of course, because of the large population, it comes down to 246 robots per 10,000 employees. In January this year, U.S. manufacturing employees accounted for 12,559,000 people, 8.4% of total U.S. employment. There were 79 million new vehicles sold in 2021 in the United States. So that's a quick roundup. Well, there was a supply chain story in the news in the United Kingdom this week, which caught my eye, and it was about HRT supplies for hormone therapy treatment for women. And apparently there's a shortage of the HRT supplies. And so what's happened presently is that there's a three-month limit to the amount of HRT that can be ordered on prescription to try and preserve the flow of supplies until production can get back. Apparently, HRT production's been disrupted due to the pandemic and to global supply chain issues. So that was one thing. And the other thing that caught my eye, remember all those stories about PPE during the pandemic and all kinds of companies competing for contracts to supply PPE, lucrative government contracts, billions of pounds spent on this stuff, and uh, apparently Baroness Moan, in the UK, you might remember her. She ran a company for making brasiers for ladies' wear, and she was quite successful with that. But apparently, her husband's been involved in one of these contracts. She's a conservative uh, peer, Baroness Moon. And during the pandemic, her husband's firm was awarded a major contract for PPE. And of course, that PPE contract is now embroiled or is the subject of allegations to do with uh, fraud. Now there are only allegations at this point and the London home was raided in the past week or so searching for evidence. Her husband's firm is registered in the Isle of Man so it's offshore. So we don't know what's going to happen there and whether the allegations will turn out to be true or false. But uh, it just goes to show there's lots of PPE contracts equally that could be looked at and investigated because a lot of that PPE just wasn't fit for purpose. And there were major contracts awarded to people that never made any sort of PPE previously. Personal protective equipment.
I mentioned a few weeks back that uh, capacity expansion in microprocessors was underway in the United States, £20 billion worth of investment in two semiconductor plants in Ohio this year. And there's more planned. There's an aim to revitalise the US semiconductor industry. And with global chip shortages, that's disrupted much of automobile manufacture. That seems a very sensible strategy and particularly to minimise the impact and spread the risk as new technologies come on stream, such as 5G. Intel is planning to construct a plant in Chandler, Arizona, which will begin in 2024. Global Foundries is also planning investment and opening plants, and TSMC has a factory site in Phoenix. So in total, there's about $52 billion US dollars of investment to secure chips for the long term. When we talk about microchips, we quite often just talk about semiconductors or microchips, but there are basically four types. There's those that we regard as microprocessors and logic devices, there are memory chips, there are analog chips, and optoelectronics and sensors. So all the things we see and use in supply chains for counting inventory or pass inventory passing through sites or trucks and so on is in that latter category. And different chip types have different supply chains. Semiconductors in the United States account for just 11% of the total manufacturing in the world, so it's quite low. It makes sense if you're trying to develop resilient supply chains to crank up the ante on the production of semiconductors to minimise the risk to the infrastructure that's being developed for the future economy. If you want to secure that future economy and have some kind of supply chain advantage, then a few things need to happen. There needs to be a lot more investment in securing assets that will allow that future economy to develop. So obviously investment in minerals is very important to make sure that you can get hold of the minerals for the lean green economy of the future. It's also important that you have semiconductors and electronic capacity to develop all the tech that you need to run the infrastructure. And so a lot more thought needs to go into securing assets that do those things. Visibility and communication are the keys to operating an effective supply chain. It's not just effective, of course, it's efficient too, because you avoid problems ahead. So what should we do? Well, we should focus on the customer, what the customer wants. And the customer wants a smooth experience. They want to know when things are going to be available, and they want to know when things are going to be delivered. So you need to take a look at integrating systems that can do that. The supply chain needs to be visible. We need to see the inventory, where it's located and how fast it's moving. And we need to be able to move things around in the network to get to the place where they need to be. Right product, right place, right time. Customer service portals are very important in this part of the chain because they give customers visibility for their orders in the supply chain. And you also need an ability to tell them when things are out of stock, be able to have back orders and fulfillment clearly visible to people so that they know when things are going to be in a distribution center or at a store or at a specific location. Making returns easy is important too so that people want to deal with you on a regular basis. And the one thing you've got to do is communicate often and well with people. So you have to make sure that they know what's going on. And if you do those things, well, you're likely to be successful. And it's likely to give you a supply chain advantage over others.
control towers is the terminology that people use to talk about visibility these days. And control towers are very important. We can use dashboards, we can use visibility metrics. Whatever you use, then it's important to understand and know how important these systems are and the technologies are to provide you with visibility. And if you think about control towers such as Blue Yonder's Luminate, they help resolve disruptions by enabling end-to-end supply chain visibility. The technology gives insight and understanding by acting on real-time information. And it gives you the data on the whole ecosystem which you're involved with. So you can look at where the problems are, total locations that are impacted. You can look at what the demand is impacted. You can take a look at the full picture, both in terms of quantity and value. And that's important. If you can get that sort of data, then you can start to think about solving problems. And you can solve them on the go as they occur rather than waiting to find out that there's some horrendous disruption in your supply chain. So having this kind of intelligence with tracking technologies, using RFID technology and GPS equipment, and putting the data together in this form is very important to understand what's going on in the supply chain. And then you can start to think about the what-if situations and the predictive analytics that the data will give you. The labour market in the United States is undergoing some significant change after returning to work after COVID. It's surprising to see a labour market readjustment taking place and more people wanting to join unions to protect the bargaining power. Now, I always think of tech companies as the startup in the garage, like Google or Apple. And it's interesting to think about when businesses are small and they start up, you don't really think about labor issues or wage payments. You pay people for a job you want them to do. And as you grow, things become more difficult and it becomes a management operation as opposed to a group of friends that might start the business in the first place. But I think the tech companies haven't really adjusted to the way the labor market works in many respects. And in supply chains and complex businesses, you want to pay a rate That's the going rate to ensure you get the job done. But you don't want to pay too much more and you don't want to pay too much less. But of course, some companies do pay more because they value their employees more. Now, I think some of the tech companies in the past have decided to pay a little more for labor. But I think as they've grown and they take on more people and in different locations and it's a fragmented workforce spread out over a larger geographical area, then those adjustments are difficult. And when the labour force realise that they're not getting sufficient share of the spoils, then they want to unionise, obviously. And of course, the balance in that labour market is held quite often as businesses grow and develop by the HR managers who inhabit the organisation. And in the United States, there are thousands of them. And the average median salary for an HR manager is around about $126,000. And when I say thousands of HR managers, it's around 900000 or thereabouts. So when you've got that imbalance of power in the labour market, then you need something to balance it up. Individuals obviously can't negotiate particularly well with the power exerted by the HR managers who have all the chips, the bargaining chips, in their hand. So it'll be interesting to see how the unionization process plays out, particularly in tech companies and particularly in the supply chain. (music) 
Well, that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. And I hope I've given you some food for thought. In the meantime, don't forget to listen to any episodes you've missed. Catch up on those. And also tell your friends and your colleagues about the Chain Reaction Podcast. So I'll be back with the news roundup on Saturday at noon. So tune in then and take a listen to what's been happening in supply chains all around the world. And I'll see you next time in the Chain Reaction Podcast. Stay up to date, stay informed. Listen to the number one supply chain podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. Listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, written, presented, and produced by Tony Hines. Hi, I'm Tony Hines. I'm here to tell you about the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. I've been researching and writing about supply chains for over 25 years. I wrote my first book on supply chain strategies in the early 2000s. Each week we have special episodes on particular topics relating to supply chains. Now we have a weekly news roundup every Saturday at 12 noon. All things impacting global supply chains in that week. So come and join us on the Chain Reaction Podcast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.